Well, let's join together in prayer. We come to you, our God. We thank you for the words of that song that remind us that you are a holy God. We hear that repeated often in scripture and we would bring it to mind as we come to your holy word, especially that as we hear what was said to the church at Pergamum, that we might hear clearly what our Lord said. We pray this in his name. Amen. In our studies so far in the seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor, we've seen that there are two threats to the spiritual vitality and health of the church. In Ephesus, the problem was that the church had lost its first love. It had entered a period of spiritual decline. It remained theologically orthodox, was busy serving, but its love and passion for Jesus had been obscured and neglected. And then last week we thought about the church at Smyrna, where the threat was completely different. There the church was dealing with persecution and suffering. Opposition to the gospel from unbelievers had erupted into a torrent. Some were to be imprisoned. All were called to put their lives on the line for their faith. If the Ephesian believers had to fight to regain their zeal, believers at Smyrna had to fight to hold their nerve and not to cave in to the prospect of what was going to happen to them. But now we come to the church at Pergamum and I hope you've noticed that the church there faced a third threat, one that speaks, I think, with real relevance to the context within which we live as disciples of the Lord Jesus. The church at Pergamon was in danger of compromise. And so Jesus, the one whose word is a sharp two-edged sword, as verse 12 reminds us, spoke this message and sent it via John to the believers there, calling them and by so doing calling us to faithfulness to the truth in a world where the truth is not accepted or wanted unless it has been diluted to the point of losing all flavour. The letter to the church at Pergamum is short, but it's punchy and it's sharp. And this morning I want you to notice three things from it. Let's notice, first of all, how Jesus was pleased about their faithful testimony. In each of the letters to the churches we've looked at so far, it's been clear that trying to live as a believer faithfully comes at significant cost. But the danger of living for Jesus in Pergamum was on another level altogether. Did you hear what Jesus said about that place? He said, I know where you dwell it is the place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. See, towering over the city of Pergamum, 700 metres over the homes and the businesses of town, was a sacred mountain whose slopes were covered with temples, especially a temple to the God of healing, whose symbol was a serpent. 
And to those temples, pilgrims came from all over the empire seeking healing from the touch of the live snakes that covered the floor of the temple. No thanks, not for me. But even more prominent in Pergamum was the mighty temple dedicated to Zeus the Saviour, built on a ledge jutting out from out the mountainside about 300 metres above the city. So to live in Pergamum was literally to live under the shadow of the worship of idols and the influence of these idols was inescapable. And then also like the city of Smyrna, this city was pro-Roman. It was actually the capital of this Roman province and was the centre of the cult of the emperor in addition to all this pagan idolatry, a place, you could say, smothered in spiritual darkness. No wonder Jesus called it the place where Satan dwells. All of which means, on the other hand, that the very existence of a church in Pergamum is a remarkable testimony to the power of the gospel, don't you think? Right under the nose of the evil one, right under the gates of hell, as it were, was this church, this gathering of believers. See, the gospel can take root in the harshest of environments. The light shines in the darkness, says John's gospel, and the darkness has not overcome it. The church in this city reminds us that Jesus is building his church and hell's gates cannot Even though they try, they cannot prevail against it. Pioneer missionary C.T. Studd captures, I think, the boldness that must have been a feature of the church at Pergamon when he said, some people want to live within the sound of the church or the chapel bells, but I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. The believers at Pergamon, I think, would have understood what C.T. Studd said. And yet in such a spiritually dark context, there was a very real challenge that pressed down relentlessly upon the church there. And that challenge, it needs to be said, continues to press upon us still. And that's the challenge of living out the message, even when the culture is against it. Jesus says to them in verse 13, "'Yet you hold fast to my name.'" And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. This happened in the context of living in a culture that was pushing them to back off and to adjust the message, to modify their convictions in order to accommodate the spirit of the age, to make it less offensive. But praise God, the believers at Pergamon were not so easily misled. It seems they held fast to Jesus' name and did not deny their faith in him. They refused to back off from the assertion that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Not even when church members began to die for their commitment to Christ. Antipas being one example. Not even then did they jettison the message and bow to the pressure. And their example is a sober reminder that as pressure continues to mount in our day, particularly in this state, 
And this generation, that faithfulness to the truth of the gospel is a non-negotiable. Like these believers, we have to resolve to stand firm and refuse to accept the pressure to dilute the content of the message. But secondly, let's note how Jesus was dissatisfied about false teachers. We find this in verses 14 and 15, that the church of Pergamum didn't do so well within their own walls. They stood for the gospel outside, but they were crumbling inside. They were committed to the truth, wonderfully so when it was costly, but holding to the truth for one's own sake is not enough, is it? Refusing to recant your faith is not all you are called to do. It may not even be the hardest thing that we are called to do. Jude 3, we must also earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints, as we heard read this morning. And the believers at Pergamum were failing when it came to this. Were they defending the truth? They were. But how were they going in relation to contending for the truth? Well, not so much. Not so good. They were tolerating false teachers. As I thought about it, I found it a little odd. How can a church have martyrs dying for the faith on one hand and be loose with the truth on the other? And then an example popped up in the news just two weeks ago. As a matter of observation and without throwing stones at another denomination, I'm not trying to do that. Let me make this observation that the Anglican Church, which has a long history of martyrs dating way back to the Reformation, just two weeks ago failed to declare its adherence to the teaching of traditional biblical marriage. Now you may think that's stretching things a bit and maybe it is but the principle is surely there, isn't it? Pergamum was a church notable for its faithfulness to the gospel in a difficult place who at the same time was soft on the errors of false teaching right in their midst. Here surely is a practical warning for any church, that we need to beware of ever thinking ourselves to be okay because we're doing well in some areas, though we fall down in others. And at Pergamum it was tolerating these false teachers. Now what we know of the groups of false teachers isn't much. It seems that both groups, both the Nicolaitans and the followers of Balaam, were probably teaching similar doctrines. We're told what they were in verse 14. These groups allowed believers to eat without any qualms in the various temple dining rooms where food had been used in pagan sacrifice. And they affirmed that since the body didn't really matter, that since spiritual realities were all that really counted, that sexual activity therefore has no real meaning. And of course, that's a perspective with which we're quite familiar today in our culture. Who you are, we are being told this, who you are has nothing to do with your body. 
Your body isn't the real you. The real you is internal and psychological and free and and has nothing to do with your physiology or your gender. Just be true to who you are, we are told. This is nothing new. It's just a new form of Gnosticism dressed up in new clothes. It's an old lie. And so the issue here for the church at Pergamum wasn't simply that these were false teachers teaching error. The issue was that there was no action to deal with these false teachers. They were being tolerated. They made room for them. Now isn't that a temptation for us in the culture of political correctness? We might well say about false teachers, well, it's not what I hold to, it's not my view, but who am I to disagree with them? They've got their right to their opinion. It's not my conviction. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just tolerate one another's views within the life of the church? Tolerance is encouraged, but Jesus doesn't have tolerance towards false teachers. He has no tolerance for lies. Remember how he told the church in Ephesus he hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He hated it. That's strong words. And here he calls the church at Pergamum to repent of this toleration of these false teachers. And by that he calls us to do more than simply profess the truth or stand firm for the truth, he calls us to insist that all join themselves to the same mindset. It's not enough to hold fast the centre of the believer's faith if you keep on weakening the edges or abandon the boundaries. It's no benefit to the gospel if you hold fast to it while making room for others who flatly deny it. What was it about the elements of this false teaching that made it so appealing? Well, it was along the lines of food and sexual immorality. For a start, you can say there was pleasure involved in both counts. Pleasure is a powerful incentive to sin. And when you add to pleasure the peer pressure of the culture around you, then these two can be mighty temptations to take the compromise path. And when the issue at the heart of this false teaching is one of the heart because it has to do with belonging to a community and acceptance by others and there's a danger in being excluded by others, there's the nub of the matter. See, eating food offered to idols was really an issue of fellowship rather than truth. Eating with others in the first century was a sign that you belong to an entire network of a social group. And so to eat food offered to idols, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, at one level is entirely inconsequential. After all, what is an idol but a lump of stone or wood? It's nothing, right? And yet at another level, there's a demonic reality behind the deception of the world. And those who participate in eating to idols engage in the worship of those idols. And so in that light of food offered to idols, it was utterly out of bounds for these believers. But the pull and the heart's yearning for fellowship and belonging is powerful. We crave it and can pull us far from the path of faithfulness. 
Think too about sexual immorality in this light. What is it that our hearts long for that makes sexual sin so compelling, so inviting? Well, increasingly it's about identity, isn't it? Sex is about identity. Who we are is virtually defined by it these days in this culture. Isn't it fascinating then to notice the two things Jesus promises in verse 17 to those who conquer, speaking directly to heart longings, he offers hidden manna. It's a strange term, isn't it? But think of it this way. He offers a better meal. He offers himself the bread of life. A better meal that draws believer into better fellowship, offering a better connection and profound belonging. Haven't got to the third point yet. He offers them a feast that will not join us to idols, but to himself. He says, here's a better path to soul satisfaction. And he holds it out to them and to us. And he offers himself the true manna, the food that will never fail to satisfy. He also offers a white stone with a new name written on it. One that no one knows but the one who receives it. How do you feel about that being offered to you? A white stone. Hey. Now there are all kinds of suggestions what the white stone might be. A strong contender is one stone well known at the time you could break into two. Then two people would write their names on one half and swap it with the other friend and hold them as a keepsake, as a reminder of their belonging and connection to each other. The white stone, whatever the historical reference might be, that white stone bears a new name. That is to say, the true identity of the disciple of Jesus is known to him and it's known to us and it comes from Jesus. He gives you your identity. Isn't that more important than the identity given by the world? Your identity, who you are in the sight of the Lord is known to him in the most intimate way. What we so often are searching for, what our hearts are longing for, that leads many people astray in the area of pleasure, whether it be food offered to idols or sexual immorality, is promised to be met by the Lord himself. This new real identity, this new meal that you can share in. And it's offered notice to the one who conquers. The names Nicholas, from where we get Nicolaitans and Balaam, mean conqueror of the people. But those who conquer by faith in Jesus are not conquered by error. And they receive by grace what our hearts long for and not what Satan counterfeits. There are substitutes out there that seek to answer the deep needs of our hearts. That's what false teachers are peddling. Substitutes and counterfeits. But there is no substitute for the real thing that Jesus is and Jesus gives. Thirdly, let's notice in verse 16 how Jesus was forthright about continued unrepentance. 
This final note is a terrible note of warning. What will happen to these believers at Pergamum if they continue to tolerate these false teachers and false teaching that has begun to fester in their midst? Verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Did you hear that? Jesus will come and fight against them by his word if they continue to stray from the truth. That's at once enormously hopeful and incredibly fearful. He will come and wield the two-edged sword, verse 12, of his word like a surgeon's knife to wound and so to heal, to rebuke and so to restore until his people have been won back to him or put out of the fellowship of the saints. To have Jesus and the power of the Spirit wield the sword of his word to cut deeply into our hearts and into our consciences, exposing our sin, rebuking our errors, humbling us, leading us to publicly turn back, turn from our sin back to him is a profoundly painful thing to endure. But it is a mark of the great mercy of Jesus that before he comes as omnipotent judge, he comes as a warrior fighting for our love to bring us back to him and the purity of his church before it's too late. And yet this painful warfare that Jesus will wage against his church is not inevitable. We needn't endure the wounding, the stinging and the painful rebuke of Christ if we repent at his first warning. That's what these verses in this letter are, aren't they? It's his first warning to the church at Pergamum. One of the other letters we'll find Jesus gives a last warning. This is just a first warning. Therefore repent, he says, or I will come and make war with my word. How shall they conquer and not be conquered by the conquerors of the people, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans? There's only one answer given. Repentance. Turning to him now. Not because they felt like it, but because he commanded it. Let's close then with this thought that might well take you a bit by surprise. See, far, far from the image of Jesus who will do anything I ask him to do and a Jesus who will bless every decision I make and give me everything I want if I just name it and claim it, Here is an image of Jesus that won't be popular but is much closer to the truth. If you refuse to repent, if you refuse to heed his warnings, he will come against you. Like a warrior to fight against you 
and to deal with you. And if you persist in your unbelief, and if you persist in your rejection of his rule, he will eventually come as judge to you, to those who play loose with his truth. Take heart this warning. Turn back from the rocks. Find safe harbour in the word of God. There's a path we have to walk and that path involves a genuine commitment to his truth, a steering clear of the shallow substitutes offered by the world and a daily submission of hearts to his lordship and his word. If not, he says, he will come against his church, not to bless it, but to humble it so that it will no longer pretend to follow him and so that it will be the witness that it ought to be in dark places. But again, to do that, there's only one stance to take and only one fight we're called to make. And that stance is to humble ourselves and repent and give up our wicked ways. See, the fight we're called to is not a fight against Jesus. Not ever. Our fight is for his truth, against the world, against the flesh, against the evil one. To fight against him is to be in a battle that will end badly. And to win in the war, the key strategy is complete surrender. Think Joshua, face down before the captain of the Lord's army, on his face, winning the victory for the people of Israel, submitting himself, yielding himself, The church at Pergamum was to do the same. The church in Bendigo faces the same issue. And it begins with you. Will you do that this morning? Will you submit to him and win the victory? Let's pray. We thank you, gracious God, for the testimony of your word, for the one who speaks that word, the one whose mouth has a sword coming from it, the one who is a warrior, a soldier, a fighter. We find it odd to hear that he would come against his own church. But now we understand that when that church has abandoned truth, for error or diluted truth and mixed it with error that this is something that you cannot and will not tolerate. We pray for ourselves, Lord, we never want to be in the position where we say we have nothing to change, nothing to fear, nothing to change except our hearts, of course. Humble us, rebuke us where that rebuke needs to be and equip us 
not only to contend, to stand firm around the truth and say, yes, we hold to the gospel, but also to be so careful so that we do not allow any error, any falsity, any hypocrisy to take root amongst us. We come to you with thanks that your word is as that two-edged sword and that victory is promised to those who surrender and we would again commit ourselves, humble ourselves before you and accept your verdict and pray that we might continue to be faithful to the truth and it might live in our hearts. Grant us this, Lord. Grant us repentance as we hear your word against us. In Jesus' name, amen.